Hello and welcome to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia Lamanna and in this episode we are discussing feminist fashion, emancipation or exploitation. If you like what you hear in today's episode, please do rate, review and subscribe and you can always share the episode with a friend or on your Instagram stories. This just helps us get our campaign and message out there. We're also really excited to tell you that we do bonus podcasts over on our Patreon at Remember Who Made Them. You can access this bonus content for as little as £1 and all donations go direct to garment workers and their unions. I should warn you that these episodes are very juicy and we're spilling lots of tea, so I look forward to seeing you over on Patreon. On with the show. There are roughly 40 million garment workers in the world today. They are some of the lowest paid workers in the world, and roughly 80% of all garment workers are women. For this episode, we want to learn more about what it means to be the woman that makes this industry possible. We spoke to two groups who are part of the industry in different ways, one in Sri Lanka and one in Pakistan. We want to start by being transparent with you and explain that this has not been easy or straightforward. When we first started creating this campaign, we went back and forth on how we would collect these stories. On the one hand, we were committed to centering more understanding on the lived experiences of garment workers and felt the only way to do that was to speak to them directly. On the other hand, we did not want to add any more burden to them by taking up their time. We are not journalists and we did not want to repeat any extractive practices of taking their stories for our own use. As best as we can, we've spent time explaining who we are, relying on our own networks and relationships to reach out to these groups so that they have a sense of trust and faith in us as well. Technology, translation and scheduling was a bit difficult, but in spite of all that, we are so grateful for the connections that we made. With all that said, let's start listening to the conversations. It's my pleasure to pass over to Davy. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining this episode as we continue our solidarity with garment workers. I'm really excited to introduce you to Jiva, who is a worker from Sri Lanka. Jiva is one of thousands of women workers in Sri Lanka's garment industry, where it's actually valued at $5 billion. Except it frustrated me to find out that only 3% of that $5 billion goes into the hands of garment workers who are cutting, sewing, and packaging the clothes for international brands. What this means is that a garment worker in Sri Lanka earns an average of 50 cents per hour, according to the World Bank. For comparison, let's look at some salaries of top executives of fashion companies. I got these numbers from a WWD study in 2018 that looked at executive pay at fashion's top companies. So looking at the top three, there's Patrice Levey of Ralph Lauren. He had a compensation package of $23.8 million. And Doug McMillan, CEO of Walmart, and Ralph Lauren himself, they also each had compensation packages of more than $20 million. These packages um, include their salaries, but also incentives and bonuses, as well as perks, for example, car service. Um, and they also include stock awards. I'm not going to get into it just yet. Let's just get to Jiva's story and understand a bit more of what her day is like, how she got this job, and what she thinks of it. I really want to appreciate the Dabindu Collective, which which is a workers' collective in Sri Lanka that helped me arrange this interview that I've had the honor of knowing for almost 10 years. And I want to appreciate my friend Kashalia Kumraji, who helped do the voiceover into English. Anupahi. 
1995, I was 18 years old when I joined a garment factory called CNA. My salary was 2,100 rupees per month, a little less than 10 British pounds. I came to live with my relatives close by and every day I saw workers going in the morning to factories. I went to a close by job bank where they fixed an interview. After I went for an interview, I was called in the next day to start work. On the first day and in the early days, I was asked to cut threads with the other girls all together around the table. It wasn't as strict as it was today in meeting targets. It was much more flexible those days. Things have changed, both good and bad. Because of unions and collective actions, there are more systems and benefits like organized transport, a meal, better toilet facilities, and a clinic. However, with increased pressure to meet targets, I don't like to take a break to use the toilet or go to the clinic to get a sanitary pad. I'm reluctant because I don't want to miss my target. These days, the system is to try to use the minimal number of workers to get the most out of us. If there is a target that can be achieved by 100 workers, the factory is trying to achieve it with 50 workers. There are also very few breaks. For example, in my shift today, I start at 2 p.m. and go to 6 p.m. before my first break. No breaks are allowed until 6 when we are allowed to take a break in groups for our dinner and then return to work to finish the shift. I tell you girls, don't chat too much. Always make sure you complete your target so you receive your full wages. Also, try not to change factories too much so you can build a relationship with your managers and come to respect you over the years. When coronavirus caused the lockdown, so many workers were stuck in their houses with no money and no food. Luckily, with media attention, the factories felt pressured to provide some rations. Similarly, after stories were coming out, the government also tried to arrange buses for workers to return to their home villages. But it didn't happen very well either and many workers were still stuck with no jobs, no income, no food and no clean water. Today, I'm wearing a green shirt that's part of my uniform because I'm actually on my way to work soon. I'm also wearing a skirt that was given to me as a gift. I like skirt and blouses that I usually get at a local bazaar that are made by local women. I don't like to wear clothes sewn in the factory. Those styles are sold to people abroad. I don't like the v-necks and sleeveless style. When I hear Jiva's story, I really do hate the system that we are all a part of. To be sure, you know, wages have increased since Jiva's first day in 1995. Garment workers are now earning about 65 pounds a month. However, again, to understand that and make a comparison, the living cost for a family of four is about 420 pounds a month in Sri Lanka. Um, this is according to the Asia Floor Wage Alliance that calculates a living wage based on the costs of food in in a country like Sri Lanka, the cost of food for a family of four. So she's really not earning enough <laughs> if it's 65 pounds a month. Thinking about, you know, the different salaries, I, you know, I really just can't wrap my head around the salaries of top executives and why they need to be that obscenely different to garment factory workers. 
furthermore, it's they get additional perks and bonuses. Do they really need them? Whereas Jiva and her colleagues have to fight for these bonuses and perks, and then they just have to be grateful for the bare minimum, and it doesn't cause them any more happiness in their life. You know, I, I have run an organization, and I've had to make decisions on why, you know, some skills or tasks or responsibilities are going to have a higher compensation than others. So I understand there's always going to be a difference, but you cannot convince me that a CEO is astronomically more valuable than an average worker, that they're astronomically more talented, that they're astronomically more hardworking than Jiva. Something else I found as I was trying to make more sense of this is a really great image that I found through a Clean Clothes Campaign article that led me to an illustration by Public Eye. It is an illustration of a, of a Zara hoodie, and it breaks the jumper apart to say, you know, what were the costs that went into this jumper and then how much profit there is. And basically, it shows that Zara is appearing to make more profit selling one hoodie than all the workers involved in its production put together. And remember, profit is not the cost of making the hoodie. It's what you make in additional money. So... You know, it really would not be hard to make the world a better place if shareholders just did the decent thing and valued workers the same way they value their own lives or other people in their boardroom. And thinking about it for coronavirus, there's no reason workers shouldn't be paid and that we should be wondering like, oh, how are we going to solve these problems of starvation and all this hardship? It looks pretty simple to me. Again, I, I think about the number and it rep how it represents what, how we value different kinds of work and what a salary means. From a society that I want to live in, <laughs> that I thought I was a part of, you know, a salary is what you earn in exchange for the work that you do, or a different organization or company or institution, or, you know, whatever you sell if you're self-employed. And, you know, what that salary really means is that you have the means to provide for yourself and that you have the means to put food on the table for your family and that you have you know a roof over your head that is just basic again the society i want to live in would also believe that the, that money would also cover things like education you know health care and you know i also believe that it should cover you having some fun and enjoying this life on earth there is a really great movement going on about pushing for living wages around the world, not just in um, Sri Lanka, but also in the UK and the US, where living wage is not required by law. It's just a voluntary suggestion. Around the world, we still value men's work above women's work. And this is where gender inequality is especially clear. And, you know, in simple definition, you know, gender is when we ascribe a different value to a person because of their gender, that is the social and cultural traits that are associated with their biological sex. And this shows up in the fashion industry all the time. You know, factory jobs are seen as low skilled, so we set the wages lower than other management positions. And, you know, because we don't value a girl or young women the same way that we value men and boys, they're less likely to have an education Families will not pay for their education the same way they pay for men and boys. And so they're not going to get higher skilled jobs as easily as men and boys. Furthermore, even if they are highly skilled, they might not have the natural qualities of what it takes to be a leader or a manager. 
they just won't get those jobs as easily as men. Furthermore, which I think is still really the point here, is that we don't value their lives enough to even just pay them a living wage, not just a minimal wage, a living wage. You know, there's a bias in many places that women are only taking these jobs temporarily because they're just young and they want to take care of their families, but eventually they're going to get married one day and they're going to start a family and they're going to leave work. So it's not worth my time as a fashion factory owner to invest in her. She's not going to be loyal to me. Why should I be loyal to her? Furthermore, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. She's going to have a husband who is going to take care of her. And, you know, when she leaves, there's someone else who's going to take her job. So, you know, let's start them back down at a low rate because they don't have as much experience as the the worker that left. We know that this isn't something that just happens in other quote unquote economically poor countries. The gender wage gap is alive and well in the UK as well. On average, women were paid approximately 83 pence for every one pound men were paid in 2019. Thank you so much, Davy. It's now time for me to hand over to Swati to hear a little bit about what she's been up to this week. So this week I spoke to women who are part of the Home-Based Women Workers Federation of Pakistan. I spoke to Saida and Kusar. Super grateful to our friends at the International Women's Fund, Mama Cash for putting us in touch with HBWWF and to their general secretary, an amazing woman called Zahra Khan for putting me in direct touch with so many workers and organizers in their network. To be really honest, I didn't know so much about the scale of home-based workers in fashion, but having spoken to colleagues in labor justice and organizing and speaking to Kusar and Saira, Jamila and Zehra, these are some of the stories and some of the facts. We've already noted that there are millions of workers around the world within the supply chain and that 80% of garment workers are women. Many groups have noted that the workers that get paid per piece are extremely invisible, are invaluable to part of the global supply chains, but are at risk of exploitation. There are so few global facts about them. That opaqueness makes me quite nervous and suspicious. If we don't know who they are, then how do we know what conditions they work under? what rights they have and how they're faring in difficult times like a global pandemic and nationwide lockdowns, especially now so many of us are quote-unquote working from home. Women in Informal Employment and Global Organising, WIEGO, state that home-based work is a global phenomenon found in countries rich and poor. Home-based workers are those who produce goods or services in or near their homes for local, domestic or global markets. They work across many industries in the new economy, like assembling microelectronics, or the old economy, sewing garments and weaving carpets. Many home-based workers produce under subcontracts for the global value chain. To cut costs and maximise profits, firms outsource production to those who work in their own homes. It's also overwhelmingly women who drive this sector. As the work is so invisible and left out of census research and economist studies, (laughs) like care work, we don't have comprehensive statistics to go on. But Wiego estimate that countries like South Africa have around 6%, up to India who has around 18% of their entire population that works within the home-based working sector. 
in Pakistan, where these workers are from that I spoke to, home-based workers account for 5.3% of non-agricultural employment, but that represents about 40% of all non-agricultural employment for women. So it's a huge space that women are the major drivers in within Pakistan. I wanted to find out how these women got into home-based work, the kind of things they make, the conditions they worked in, their struggles, their dreams, and their organizing work with the Federation. The interviews I conducted with Saira and Kusar were done in Urdu. So here, reading the English translations, we are grateful to my Pakistani aunt, Shagufta Hanif, and my Indian mum, Neera Deepak. My name is Saira Feroz. I'm 37-year-old home-based worker from Godra Kaluni in Karachi. I'm wearing a white and printed shalwar kameez and dupatta. It's what we women wear in Pakistan. I began working from home at six year old, head sewing the jute bags for potatoes and onions. It was what all women in my community and colony did. We would be paid for 100 bags so my mom, my sister and me would make about 300 bags a day for about 45 rupees, around 21 pence. My father drove a rickshaw and education was not an option for me. I had to work to help the family. Contractors would come from house to house to tell us what to make, give us the materials and come back in a week or month to pick up what we had made. As I became more and more experienced, I worked to make jewelry. I made bangles and then I bought a sewing machine so I could take on bigger orders and started making shirts and baby clothes, moving from 15 rupees per 100 pieces, 6 pence, to 20 rupees, then 40 rupees, 18 pence. The money is so little and I am only paid twice a year. One larger sum and smaller amount. We have no contracts, no security, no rights. And many times we do the work and the contractor doesn't pay. I live in constant debt. I have to take Udhar, debt from the different shop owners to have food, medicine to pay for electricity and gas cylinder to make sure me and my family have the basics. That's how we all live. I came to know what the Federation of Khawateens in Pakistan, Home-Based Women Workers Federation of Pakistan, through chance, they visited my locality and were all led by other home-based women workers like me. They explained and we went to do market research and realized some of the pieces I would make for 8 rupees a piece would be selling in store in Karachi for 800 to 1000 rupees and the ones which would be sent abroad or in the air-conditioned Angrezi shops 
would be selling for 5000 rupees or higher we all knew we were being cheated but hearing from so many others on the levels and the way we all needed to work from 6 in the morning till 11 or 12 at night living in debt and still not being able to make ends meet it really hurt me and it was wrong even when we were sick in emergencies we had to wait for days in state hospitals to get care i lost many families and friends this way the organizer and other women gave me strength that by coming together we could fight for what was right it feels so good to be with the other women in a true sisterhood as stand by each other when we are intimidated we laugh together we celebrate the small things that bring us happiness and move towards us having our rights realized i have been an organizer for the federation since 2017 by coming together we can all raise the rates we were being paid and bargain in bigger group we work directly with some brands and cut out middlemen but it's still not close to what we deserve so we continue coronavirus and lockdowns have hurt us very badly there is no work the men can't work driving rickshaws or in the factories and stores many peoples are starving as we haven't been paid and our debt is just rising though the federation we have been able to get some emergencies rations i'm healthy and have been able to help with packing these into home packs and taking to homes of those most in need in need for the future of fashion for businesses for those that buy what we make i want them to know there are thousands of us women in pakistan probably more in other countries who work from home we don't have any rights we are not considered workers we want to be paid regularly so we don't have to live in debt and we want to be paid fairly i want this to honor my parents whose lives didn't change for me and my fellow workers and for my nieces and our children i see them starting to work aged 10 or 12 when they are not in school just like i did we don't want big things just want to not be in the debt to buy food water pay off electricity and get access to health care we just want dignity i was so grateful to saida for our long chat i spoke to the team afterwards and to be honest couldn't control my tears even though i've worked in international development spaces and on women and girls rights and gender equity for years 
stories like that stay with you. I just couldn't get over how little she made just pennies in a day for such long hours and such difficult work and just living in debt for all her life. But the tears that flowed for me were just about how she demonstrated what true human resilience and strength is, that it doesn't come from wanting great things or from wanting grandness, just living life in dignity, peace and safety. That's really what everyone wants and deserves. She started working at such a young age and she was looking at her parents and then forward to her nieces and other children with the same hopes of change as for herself. After speaking with Saira, I also spoke to Kusar Ali, who was much older and from a different part of Pakistan, who also shared her story. Walaikum Salaam. My name is Kausar Ali. I'm 60 year old from Sangar in Sindh, Pakistan. Today I'm wearing a brown salwar kameez. It's my favorite, though I prefer wearing white or black. White is my absolute favorite. I've been a home-based worker, garment worker, since I was 12 year old. I started helping my mom and sisters and love to make the clothes. Even now, I work, I teach others, I teach young girls how to stitch. One of my favorite thing is to do zardozi or sindhi kadai. It's a beautiful art form. Even now, I wear my glasses to make it. I love to do it. But even there, we are cheated. Sometimes we work together to make a wedding outfit for over two weeks. A group of women, sometimes six of us, we get 800 rupees, but they are sold in the market for 24,000 rupees or more. It's sad as on our own weddings and celebrations, we have to rent clothes. At 16, I got married and had six children. I manage the home, my children, my husband. He's a good man. He drives a rickshaw and is out most of the day. I work every day to stitch clothes. I work hard. I build my home and I supported my family, many people around me. I help poorer girls in my community with their marriage cost. I would pay for their food or for their trousseau cost. I wanted to help those struggling. That's how I met Sajda Baji. She worked and was part of the Home-Based Women's Worker Federation in Pakistan. She saw me wanting to help others and said, I should really join the Federation. I had to join. I had always known my purpose was to help people and had wanted to have a platform to help others to be in service of others. The problems, the injustices, and the struggles I've faced, I don't want others to go through them. I want them to have their rights. And in those rights, they stand with me and I stand with them. The others in the Federation, the other members, the leaders, they're all very good people. We meet up, sit together, hear from each other, check how each other is doing. I get so much happiness from this. 
all the leaders and members in the federation like zahra and others see ourselves as one family we are there for each other in the struggles and in strives we are there to fight and to celebrate wins and be happy i love the leaders and members of the federation in some ways more than my own family or my respected near and dears what i want to say about women if a woman wants to rise no one can stop her there's no strength like that of a woman the problem is that some of our traditions our practices our rights people use them to control women women want to go out and they can't do this i went out i got told lots of things i did it all i worked i brought up my kids built my home i had lot of negative things but i ignored them i didn't listen to them with women she is a sherni a tigress she's so strong she runs and builds her home educate her kids got them married this is the message i want to give it to other women you should fight and rise don't listen to men don't be scared of your husbands your sons any men if you are right no one should hold you back or say anything negative to you keep your strength keep your fire keep your resolve women are so so strong there's no strength like that of a woman women can give birth to a child men cannot do that so women have strength what men don't have for future of fashion i want to say that we home based workers do not want to work through middlemen who inflate make us do the work and charge double or triple outside we want to work directly with factories or with brands and we want to be viewed as workers we want a part in this long road and we know from garment workers in factories that even though they are so called rights it's not honored or their protection is not reinforced we all just want to be honored and be recognized for our hard work and paid fairly dekhna main kaisi silai karti hu theek hai na what i took from kusar's story was how the myth of the breadwinner is real kusar followed societal expectations for her life she got married she had kids she ran a home she raised them on top of that she worked she worked she cared for everyone she built her home and she supported those around her kosara reminds me just how strong women are and that they have been working organizing in their countries and communities for millennia and have been at the forefront of demanding their and our collective rights Davey posed the question for this week's podcast: Women's rights in fashion, emancipation, or exploitation. In so many settings, including in international policies, we are told that women's path to liberation lies in them being "quote unquote" economically empowered and making money. But all the stories point to the fact that women are working, often as the main breadwinners in their families. 
They are the ones both propelling the fashion industry as the majority of women in garment factories, the majority of workers at home, the models on the runway, the ones in the magazines, and the ones buying the goods. Being told to look this way, look that way, to buy, buy, buy. Wiego and the International Labour Organization, the ILO, published a report on the Informal Economy Monitoring Study. And it showed actually that home-based workers contribute to society in so, so many ways. Their earnings often keep their households out of extreme poverty. They work from home, which means that they're available to care for children and the elderly and maintain the quality of family life. Again, something that falls on the shoulders of women around the world. Since these workers do not commute daily and often rely on bicycles, walking or public transport, they reduce emissions and congestion and impact very little on the environment. They are economic agents. They buy supplies, raw materials and equipment. They pay taxes on those raw materials. And the firms up the chain that sell their finished goods often charge sales taxes, which add to public coffers both in their home country and abroad. So it's not really even that women just need to get jobs and get paid better. Although with my day job hat on, girls and women absolutely need access to education, an end to child marriages, greater sexual and reproductive rights and greater legal and economic access. To be fair, we just need to listen to women and girls and we need to follow their path. But Really what the story is for me, Hammer Home, is that ultimately women are working. They're working really, really hard. But society needs to value them more and pay them for their real worth. If we're truly to have emancipation rather than exploitation, for me, that's the crux of what needs to change, both in fashion and beyond. Hey, it's Davy again. I'm honored to talk with Ambika Satkunanathan, a lawyer and a human rights advocate from Sri Lanka and currently an Open Society Fellow. From 2015 to 2020, she was a commissioner for the Sri Lankan Human Rights Commission, which is a major independent body that promotes and monitors the protection of fundamental rights guaranteed by Sri Lankan's constitution, as well as by international standards. Thank you for joining us on Remember Who Made Them. And I just really appreciate getting a chance to talk to you about the lives of women in Sri Lanka who have entered the garment industry. We heard from Jiva earlier in the episode, and I just had some questions, you know, like knowing that the garment industry represents such a large amount of wealth for the country. Do you see that the garment industry represents emancipation for women, like that they're able to access jobs and earn money that they hadn't before? Or do you see it as also exploitation based on the way we value their labor and the working conditions? So do you think that the industry is good for women or not? I, I would say it is both. It is empowerment and it's also exploitation. There's a, a Sri Lankan anthropologist, I think about maybe 20, more than 20 years ago, she wrote a short piece on former combatant and she called it ambivalent empowerment and I think that is very true in relation to women in various sectors in various spaces and I found that also in my research on former combatants 
Uh, and I think that is very true here because for these women, they come from rural backgrounds, uh, from marginalized communities, from uh, poor families. So for them to be able to uh, find some sort of economic independence and empowerment to perhaps even uh, leave home, once again, that too can be a process that is traumatic to leave home for the first time, come and live in such terrible conditions but at the same time it also gives them space it gives them freedom to be away from the scrutiny of the village of the community of the family so i think it is definitely a uh, both and it i i came across um, a very uh, interesting work by um, a sri lankan named sandhya hevamana she says that in sri lanka they've uh, the sad plight and the exploitation, the suffering, etc., of the garment factory workers has been well documented. But what she tries to document are the, the other spaces. So, for instance, even within restrictive working conditions, how they resist, how they rebel, or how they find spaces for laughter, to play pranks. And she looks at the other side of it. She also says, you know, this kind of empowerment as well as exploitation, how it happens at the same time, how they have certain lives of freedom when they're here, albeit within certain restrictions. But when they go back home, they're, you know, they have to fit within a certain patriarchal setup, which gives them a certain security and comfort, but also robs them of certain freedoms. So I think at every point in every space, whether it's within the works workplace or whether it's within the, the boarding houses where they live or the villages from where they come. It is both. It is exploitation, it's empowerment, it's freedom, it's new restrictions. I think it, it's a paradox. I think sometimes when we talk or read about garment workers, it's still always written still on so much victimizing and exactly i mean we always look at them as uh you know people or women without as you said without agency or women who have to be rescued and perhaps in the same way we look at uh women who engage in sex work so instead of giving them or to ensure that they're able to enjoy their rights and make the choices that they want to within a secure environment what we try to do is take a very um a kind of a, a patronizing or a, or a, what we think is a benevolent way of addressing the issue, which then might actually rob them of um, agency. And I think perhaps it comes back to also how society views women, particularly, you know, our traditional societies, rural societies, women have to be protected. When women go out into these spaces, they become corrupted because that's how in Sri Lanka they even now, I think, view garment factory workers. You know, they have slang terms for them, like juki girls. I was reading about the juki girls, this word. Do you want to share more? What Just what I meant? Yeah. You know, those are the machines that they use. So they use that to refer to these women. And it's all like a derogatory derogatory term because as I said, it's like someone who is, you know, a loose woman who's promiscuous, um, they've left home, they've come into the city, you know, they get abortions, they have extramarital relations. So that's what the term, the term comes from the machine itself that they use, but that's what it means. 
they're not recognized as equals within the society or income generate generating income for their communities and for the country but instead while you exploit them and get that from them you view them as someone who is lesser than you who is less equal than yeah, you yeah and i just i don't it really ex- shows i feel of they can bring in so much wealth for your family for the country but still there's control over how we value them seems very blatant and also it's about it comes down to you know controlling women's sexuality right often that's the core we want to control women's bodies we want to control their sexuality and we believe that uh, in order to control that we need to have them only within certain spaces and not transgress certain boundaries or certain lines and once they do that we don't know as a society as a community what to do about that and also it's complicated by the fact that we get economic benefit from them so we don't also want to shut that down hence i think this this conflict within even probably their own families within the village within the community and uh, as a society because as a society i think we talk about the industry right but we don't talk about the women or we talk about the industry in a very positive way as something that is contributing something but the women uh for the larger society the women are invisible even for the government the state the women are invisible the women are visible for the rights activists but even for the rights activists perhaps we view them as people who need to be helped or rescued and not really as people having agency and they're also visible for society as as i said people who basically you know transgress certain values or boundaries and hence are just lesser than yeah, us yeah and I, i mean actually based on your experience um with the human rights commission and all your human rights work these different roles that you're talking about the the activists who might see them as like we need to rescue them or the government needs to be accountable where do you think these rights will come and what is the government role what would be the workers role do you have any thoughts on the brand or then even us as consumers i think it comes back to once again i think as a globally all of us uh, as societies our values because i think you know you know capitalist very exploitative economic systems we have i think uh, the values of equality equity uh, etc are we pay lip service to them they are in our constitutions they are in the un conventions but where the economic sphere is concerned i think until now that has in a way escaped these conversations or it's not been mainstream because where civil and political rights are concerned we constantly bring these terms and these values but not where the economic system is concerned because where that is concerned in a way um it is uh, legitimate or it's okay it's acceptable for you to um, exploit and if that means uh, earning a profit then it's really okay because even where states are concerned the kind of concessions that they might give to business to encourage you know investment would impinge on the rights of the workers 
but that would be considered okay because it is for the greater good of the country. So once again, that exploitation becomes okay in, in many uh, spaces. And it's also because I think governments in many of our countries have also stepped back from their responsibilities. And a lot of state responsibility has been privatized and has been monetized. Uh, which then comes back to this whole exploitation, whereas everything is a business and everything is expected to turn out a profit. The best example, and now you, you find that this is happening in the United States, is that when they say the United States Postal Service has not been turning out a profit, people point out, well, the military really hasn't been, uh, you know, turning up a profit. Uh, but how, that often tends to take up the largest share of a national budget. So a lot of these things are not expected to turn out a profit. And it, the, for the state to, I think, play its role, uh, it does mean that in many spheres, uh, it's not about profit. It's about ensuring that people have their rights. And if you want to ensure that there is equity, then it does require putting in place certain uh, rules or certain restrictions, etc. When we talk about protections in terms of labor or, uh, you know, restrictions on businesses, it is often met with such horror as if how could you be so regressive or how could you be so backward? And this is really very conservative thinking. But at the same time, people are quite okay with placing restrictions on rights. They're quite okay with, you know, people being exploited. So to me, that I find that quite shocking in a way. I think it comes back again to our values. Yeah, I think just a couple of days ago in the UK, like a lot of um, government money has been taken by fast fashion companies and, you know, bonuses are given to the CEOs and they're taking a bailout, but they're still cutting jobs. And if you give any rescue or any support to workers, they're lazy. Their lives are just not valued the same at all. But, you know, I was yeah, talking to Dabindu yep, Collective, exactly. um, a workers collective in Sri Lanka. And when I asked them what solidarity meant, um, they said, you know, it, it's up to the workers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to demand accountability from their government. It is going to be somewhat hard for, you know, someone in the UK to demand accountability from the Sri Lankan government, but we could demand accountability from the brands. Well, I think, um, yes, it's also about uh, demanding accountability from your own governments as to perhaps the, the kind of laws that the government, your own government has to regulate these companies or to regulate these industries to lobby the industries in your own countries to put in place, you know, um, uh, guidelines or regulations or good standards, you know, ethical standards about doing business. With whom do you do business? With what kind of companies do you do business? What kind of due diligence should you do before you contract a company in Sri Lanka or India or Bangladesh to fill out your order. It would be very useful because right now the companies often say, well, we didn't actually know that, you know, because we outsourced it to like through three different companies, we had no idea who was uh, doing, you know, the stitching at the end, you know, in the final stage of it. And therefore we had no idea. So the thing is to figure out for us, I think, to learn how does the system actually work? 
what are the rules within this system that also allow companies to uh, then plead ignorance or to say they didn't know and then for us to figure out processes and systems to counter that and to make these companies accountable so as i said accountability through uh, lobbying them naming and shaming making public lobbying the government to put in place more protective rules or rules that pr- protect human rights uh, when in in uh, regulating these companies the systems tend to be not complicated but they tend to be structured in such a way that they confuse you or do, you don't figure out where the loopholes are i think first is for us to learn about it then to figure out where can we be more effective on which entities do will we be able to have power from where we are so if you are in the uk uh what role can you play there we are investigating sort of how much impact you can have with the naming and shaming um i think it does work so long as it's also accompanied or like alongside you know workers getting to have their unions and demand sitting down at the table with a brand to be able to negotiate for their rights to you know not only protect them but then to advance them so yeah i, I think I hope it's all about being connected. One last question which I um which we ask every guest is, you know, would you be willing to tell us what you are wearing? What this the whole kind of this conversation or conversations like this have made me realize is that um even I at times have been uh complicit in uh the exploitation of these women. because there have been times when i have not been aware of what i have been wearing or i have made a purchase without thinking about it i think i'm wearing something that was actually made in sri lanka i don't know the provenance of it so i don't know where the cloth came from exactly and i don't exactly know who stitched it but at the same time i think my conscious decision is is to be careful about where i buy how i buy and to think a little bit more about it because i think the consumer culture is such that in a way we've been socialized where we don't think about it it's like we do it on rope ambika thank you so much for chatting i agree with ambika that we all have an individual role to play in ethical fashion consumption but all of us hosts and i think many listeners are recovering fast fashion addicts and we're all trying to do better Um, one of the reasons I even felt like I could have a chat with someone like a, with a profile like Ambika is because we've actually bonded over shopping for clothes in malls and bazaars in India, and I think we can honor that there is joy in fashion and expressing ourselves through what we wear, but we can't forget about the joy and dignity of those who made them. Yes, Davy, I am so on board with that, and I am just super grateful for this episode. I don't know how our listeners are feeling, but I definitely feel more connected to some of the women who make our clothes. We would absolutely love to hear your feedback on today's episode. You can find us on Instagram at Remember Who Made Them, and also on Twitter at Made underscore Them. Thank you so much again for listening. We're looking forward to being back in your ears soon, and in the meantime, you can find us on Patreon at Remember Who Made Them. Take you on a journey through my mind